Well, Christ indeed has been highly exalted. Um, we have gathered together this morning in his name to worship our great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, you may be seated, church. Just please um, join your hearts to mine as um, we lift up uh, prayer to our God and Father. O oh Lord, our God, Father in heaven, as the prophet Isaiah saw, um, you sit enthroned in heaven, surrounded by the ceaseless praises of cherubim and seraphim. O oh God, you sit enthroned upon the praises of your people, dwelling in unapproachable light, and yet having been sprinkled clean with the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are able to come near before your throne, to find it as a place of grace. And we do that this morning, humbly, gratefully, and yet also boldly, as we have come into this solemn assembly to offer up sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to you in our Lord Jesus' name. We ask, O oh God, that you would help our hearts, our minds, all that we are to be wholly directed, fixed upon, focused on Jesus. That Jesus would be our only delight and source of comfort and joy in this life, as we know that he will be ours forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth, that he is our life, our sweetness, and our hope, and that during this worship service and throughout the rest of the course of our lives, that he would be preeminent, that he would be central. Oh Lord, the gospel, the good news of the forgiveness of sins that is found only in him is such a beautiful, magnificent thing for us to contemplate. By it, you have brought salvation to us. And we ask, Holy Father, that fear of man or desire to do other things would not stop us from sharing that gospel the power of you, O oh God, unto salvation, that that would not stop us from sharing that gospel with those who we know in our lives who desperately need to hear it, that we would be bold as a church, corporately in our proclamation of that gospel, but also individually, that you would help us to talk to our family, our friends, co-workers who we know at this very moment her children of wrath, who are commanded to repent and to turn to Christ. Help us to be vessels that you would use to bring the heavenly treasure of the gospel to them and that we would not shrink back from doing that when times, opportunities present themselves. Father, help the gathering church to be salt and light in our community, a beacon of gospel hope and faithful proclamation of your word in Ash County, North Carolina. Holy Father, we pray that you would bestow those same blessings upon the church planning work down the mountain in Wilkesboro. Father, we lift up this petition to you now that you would bless Pastor Scott, Pastor Tim, as they labor down the mountain, encourage them, sustain them in this good labor that they have set their hands to the plow of. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help the hearts of all of the saints down there to become unified as they set their faces towards constituting for another embassy of the kingdom of Christ to open its doors, as it were, down in Wilkes County. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would continue to bring people, that you would continue to knit hearts together, and that you would glorify yourself in Wilkesboro. We also pray that you would glorify your name in Toronto, Canada, where our brothers and sisters at Covenant Baptist Church are, our sister congregation there in the RB Net, 
We do pray, O oh Lord, that you would be gracious to them and that you would bring leadership to them as they also are desiring to plant a church in the greater Toronto area. Father, that you would please equip them um, with, for all the needs that they have as they desire that good work. Holy Father, that you would also encourage them as they continue their work in Barbados that Pastor Ritter's guard is leading, that you would be pleased with the work of the saints there. Oh God, that you would please raise up more men to labor um, in the fields there, that you would bring godly qualified elders to serve alongside um, Pastor Chris Powell. Father, we also pray that you would sustain Pastor Chris as he is caring for his mother and father who both are sick with cancer. Father, as he grieves the loss of his sister a few months ago, as he is going through a dark season, a very difficult time, that you would comfort him, encourage him, wrap your fatherly arms around him, and that he would be able to run the race that you have set before him with joy, looking to Christ. And so we lift up our brothers and sisters in Canada this morning. Lord, we also pray for Congresswoman Virginia Fox as she continues to serve in the House of Representatives representing Ashe County and the other counties in our region of North Carolina. We pray that you, O oh God, would be merciful to her, that she would stand in Congress for justice and righteousness, that you would use her to be a blessing to our nation, to her constituency, and that she would only, oh God, vote in favor of legislation that is pleasing to you and that you would uphold her um, in uh, that responsibility that you have given her as a civil magistrate. So we commit her to you this morning. Oh, Holy Father, in our own congregation, we lift up the Seats family to you. We lift up um, little Ezzy, Ezra, as he is sick as he is being tended to by physicians and nurses. Oh God, we pray that you would please be merciful to him. Please grant healing and a clearing up of his little lungs. Sustain him, restore him to health, oh God, and vigor. Help Nathan and Kirsten not to be overwhelmed by anxiety or worry during this time, but to, again, as we have been praying, to find their comfort in Christ and to trust you. Oh God, that you would please draw near to them during this time. Help Ezzy to feel better and um, restore them to us very soon. We pray that you would show your kindness and grace to the Seats family. And Father, that you would even help Eli during this time to think soberly and that you would use this for good in his life. Lord, we also pray for um, the Duncan family who we love and thank you for bringing them to our congregation. We pray that you would please bless our sister Lena's um, husband Todd as he travels on another business trip soon, that you would grant him safety. And, oh God, that you would also grant the common grace of success and that these business trips would go well and would lead to good work for Todd such that he could provide for his family. Lord, would you please grant that grace and kindness to the Duncans, you would also protect Todd as he travels down to Florida to visit his stepmother, who is um, having hospice brought in, that you would glorify yourself in that situation. Oh, Holy Father, that you would use all of this for good, that you would bless and strengthen the Duncan family, that you would draw near to them during this season. And Father, we also pray for 
the Spindla family as they have transitioned and are continuing to transition down in Wilkesboro, that you would help them to adjust down the mountain, that they would um, thrive down there in Wilkes County, that you would sustain them, that you would bless Roger as he leads his household, that this would be a good and sweet time for them, that you would help us as a church to continue to reach out and to love them, and that this would be a good start to a new chapter in the Spend Love family's lives. And so we commit them to you this morning. And finally, oh God, we give you thanksgiving for speaking to us in your word, by your spirit. And as your word is read and proclaimed during this portion of our worship service, we pray with confidence um, trusting in your promises that by your Holy Spirit that you will use it for good, that you will accomplish your purposes in our lives individually and corporately as a church, and that you would glorify yourself through this body. We give you all praise and glory and honor today, and we lift up this before you, Holy Father, in our Lord Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, um, our text this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 6, as we continue our series, our study through this first book of the Bible. And as Moses is continuing to um, narrate the events and the state of the world leading up to the cataclysmic global flood, we will be looking at verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Please stand as the word of God is read. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. These are the words of God. You may be seated, church. Well, President Thomas Jefferson, our town's namesake, obviously, has an interesting quote which came to my mind while I was studying this text preparing for this morning's sermon. Um, Jefferson wrote in his notes on the state of Virginia, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. Jefferson wrote and did many good things, but he was not a Christian. He was not a believer. Nevertheless, his reference here in this quote to the patience of God running out for the sake of the divine justice is quite sobering. Now, why do I make use of this quote this morning? Well, in this passage, we read Moses narrating the state of the world around, give or take, 10 generations after the fall of Adam. And put simply, it is horrible. Wickedness is rampant. And as the Lord surveys the creation, he makes a very startling and somber statement that there would only be 120 years more of mercy before he would bring the hammer down upon mankind. God is long-suffering. God is patient. But eventually, in his good time, justice is brought to bear. Ironically enough, for President Jefferson, unless he repented, 
that time for justice for him came on the 4th of July, 1826, when he passed into the next life and stood before God's throne naked and exposed in his sin. For mankind, in Genesis chapter 6, their time for justice would come in a little over a century when God would bring the cataclysmic waters of the global flood upon them. In this passage, God, um, through Moses, is communicating a few details about what's going on in the world during this time, giving us a sketch so that we can understand the state of affairs. That's what we're going to be spending time on this morning. So I invite you to look at verse 1 with me. It begins by saying, when man began to multiply on the face of the land. Now stop right there. Already, we see that this is similar language to which God himself said what he commanded Adam in Genesis 1.28, right? Sounds very um, much like that. God said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, right? Well, coming now to chapter 6. Mankind is being fruitful. Mankind is multiplying. However, we also remember what Ecclesiastes says about our race, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. It was supposed to be perfectly righteous children of Adam and Eve, populating the earth and taking dominion, spreading the worship of God into all corners of the earth, spreading the boundaries of the Garden of Eden until all the earth was covered in that way. But instead, because of the fall, it's a corrupted image of God that we read is spreading across the land. Now true, there was the holy line of Seth. We've talked about that. But for the most part, earth is being filled with wicked men and women who are enslaved to Satan as their God, which means that sin is spreading like wildfire. And this helps set the scene for what follows next in the text. So, so let's go back and read that again. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now Moses mentions something here that up to this point hasn't been discussed a lot in Genesis, at least not directly. He mentions daughters, Mankind is reproducing by having sons and daughters. That seems pretty obvious, but the daughters of humanity gain the attention of those referred to here in the text simply as the sons of God. Now, I feel compelled to say that this passage is the most difficult that I have ever had to interpret and work through as a pastor here at the gathering. Genesis 6 has been the subject of countless commentaries and articles, opinions, and debates for millennia. And there are very different views of this passage held by lots of solid men of God who I esteem and respect greatly. Um, lots of different views. But the view that I will be presenting this morning is the one that I believe to be the most accurate and faithful to the biblical text. This view also happens to be the strangest and um, hardest to understand view. But it is a view held by uh, many modern um, and excellent theologians of our day, such as Sam Amadi, Jim Hamilton, uh, Dr. Peter Gentry at Southern um, Seminary. I am indebted to them for their work here on verses 1 and 2, and I do commend it highly to you. So, all that being said, who are the sons of God? 
Drum roll, please. I believe that the sons of God are angelic creatures. They are fallen angels, what we would typically call demons. What leads to this conclusion? And we're not going to be able to exhaust this this morning. But it is a question that a lot of people have, and it is in the text, so I do want us to spend a few moments searching the scriptures and studying why it is that this conclusion is come to. Well, the first factor that I want to point your attention to is in this verse itself. Notice how it's written and how it's structured. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now in verse one, man is a reference to the entire race of Adam. In other words, it's all mankind. So that means these daughters are referred to as being the daughters of all people, all peoples, all mankind, as they are spreading. But in this narrative, it isn't the sons of man who find the women attractive. It's the sons of God. Now, my point here in bringing that up is that there is a clear distinction. There is a line of contrast between sons of God on the one side and daughters of men on the other. And that in of itself is significant because I submit to you that if these sons of God are just ordinary guys, just ordinary men, why does Moses distinguish them so clearly from man? What would be the purpose in that? The second reason I will point you to as regards the sons of God being angels is in the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 6. Now turn there with me in your Bibles. In Job, chapter 1, verse 6, we read, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So here is a reference to the angelic army, and they are referred to as the sons of God. Now flip a few pages to chapter 38, verse 7. God speaking here. We read, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or where were its bases? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So again, we see the same thing. Angelic creatures given the title sons of God. That's significant because it's identical to the term that we find in Genesis chapter 6. Which again feeds into the distinction that's being drawn out by saying that all mankind is spreading out on the earth. And that the daughters are the daughters of all mankind. That these daughters daughters are separate from the sons of God. Now, to be sure, there are other uses of the phrase sons of God to refer to the elect, for instance, but this clearly shows us that the scripture uses the term in reference to the angels as well. The third and final reason that we will look at this morning is based on a hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutics being that process that we use to interpret the Bible. Our confession of faith says that the only infallible interpreter of the scripture is the scripture itself. And a principle within that principle is what we sometimes call New Testament priority, meaning that the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, meaning that newer revelation helps us understand older revelation better. So now keeping that in mind, let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 9. Again, that's the second epistle of Peter chapter 2 beginning in verse 4. 
Peter writes, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now, the theologians whom I mentioned earlier rightly, I believe, point out here that Peter very explicitly connects the sin of angels with the flood and the deliverance of Noah, just as he connects in this same passage the sin and destruction of Sodom with the deliverance of Lot. In Peter's mind, the sin of angels and the destruction of the pre-flood world are somehow related to one another. In other words, this passage is an apostolic interpretation of who these sons of God are in Genesis 6. Peter says that these angels, or in the language of Job in Genesis 6, these sons of God, sinned in some way related to the flood and they were condemned for it. But what is this sin which these sons of God engaged in? Well, now we return to Genesis chapter 6. So to recap, angelic creatures see that the human women are attractive. So think beautiful, lovely to look at. And that attraction to the daughters of men leads them to as the verse says, take as their wives any they chose. So the sons of God come to the fair human women, take them as brides, and have sexual intercourse with them. Now, that raises a host of other questions. If angels are spirits, how is this even possible? How do angels even have sexual desire? One commentator speculates that the angels possess the bodies of human men. We know that's possible. We see that in the ministry of Jesus. But I notice here, and I want to note and point out, because I think it's, it's valid as we're thinking about this text, it's also possible for angels to assume some kind of physical form. For example, later on in this same book, we will see angels eat with Abraham. And the depraved men of Sodom will want to rape those same angels as they stay in Lot's home. Now, I realize, brothers and sisters, that this all may be either very confusing to you or very interesting to you. Maybe it's both. I don't know. But to simplify it all, I will simply state the overview. Rebellious angels took the lovely human women as brides and somehow had sex with them leading up to the flood. How exactly did this come about? Did these women even know who these sons of God were? Did they know that they were angels? God has not revealed such things to us. And I believe at this point, it's wise for us to acknowledge that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. We may not be able to explain, at least to our satisfaction, every detail of everything that we read in the Bible, but we do by faith, believe 
everything that we read in the Bible. And in the Bible, we know that everything which we need for life and godliness is found. The scripture is sufficient. In this age, the inerrant holy Bible, that's what we need and that's what we have. It equips us. Everything that we need is contained in holy inspired writ. That's encouraging to the disciple of Christ, isn't it? That all that we need for life and godliness is contained in the Holy Scripture? Now, sometimes we will have questions about certain things, certain passages. How did the sons of God have intercourse with the human women? What role did the women play in this? Those are questions that we don't have straightforward answers to, and it's okay to acknowledge that. We acknowledge that God has told us what we need to know, that everything we need to know and to believe is in the scripture and it can be trusted. It doesn't have to be questioned. But Moses does record this strange account for a reason. That's why it's there. He doesn't spend a lot of time on it and in a way, we almost can find it frustrating that he doesn't explain himself more. It's almost just like a passing comment that he goes right past to get maybe to what the main point of the passage is. But he does include it because it's relevant to depicting what the pre-flood world was like. And again, I will say it was terrible. It was bizarre in some ways even. This sexual union of angels and men was clearly unnatural and displeasing to God. Jude says that the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority left their proper dwelling. So though we know that this particular episode is obviously extraordinary, we also know, brothers and sisters, that God detests all sexual sin. He hates it. Surely Sodom's fate alone is proof of that. Sexual immorality is a desecration of the image of God in the human person. Paul commands us to flee from sexual immorality. He says that every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There's something particularly egregious about it and offensive to God. Now we know that sexual intimacy is a wonderful gift from God in marriage, a man and a woman lovingly giving of themselves to one another. But we also know that Satan loves to corrupt that and to twist that. Pornography, self-pleasuring, fornication, adultery, all of these things are perversions of God's good design for sexual intimacy, and we must put on the armor of God and do battle against such things, church. Jesus tells us to rip our eye out rather than to lust after someone. Do we take this as seriously as our Lord does? Sexual perversion is in part what brought about the destruction of the pre-flood world. And to that point, verse 3 brings us to God's declaration concerning the state of things. So let's read that. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. It's the Spirit of God which sustains the world and all that is in it. All things hold together in God, in Christ. In God we live and move and have our being. 
And we also know to be true what we Christians confess in the Nicene Creed, that the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, and that the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets. Now, I like the way that the King James Version renders this verse. It says, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. And the New American Standard translates it the same way. On this topic, beloved, of God's spirit striving with men, I want you to consider several texts of scripture. Nehemiah says of the Israelite nation, many years, O God, you bore with them. And you warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. In Isaiah chapter 65, God himself speaks in a similar way to Israel. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. This work of the Spirit of God striving or contending with stubborn sinners is also spoken of by Stephen, the first martyr of the church in Acts 7. He tells the unbelieving Jews, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? So in Genesis 6, if you'll allow my paraphrase, God is essentially saying, I am not going to keep doing this forever. In a manner of speaking, God is saying, my patience is wearing thin. Eventually, he would cease striving with the pre-flood world. Eventually, there would be no more grace extended to that wicked generation. No more opportunities for repentance would be given to them. Eventually, their refusal, their stubborn pride and arrogance, their refusal to submit to God as their creator would be punished. As some men have helpfully noted, saints like Noah and Enoch, presumably, based on our text a couple of weeks ago, men like these, these saints were preaching repentance during this time. Peter says that Noah was a herald of righteousness. Another way to say that would be saying a preacher of righteousness. We know that Enoch was prophesying about coming judgment from God. But these holy men's pleas were ignored. So as Peter reminds us in the New Testament, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. But we know that judgment did eventually come. That wicked generation eventually did have, as I said earlier, the hammer brought down upon them. God says his abiding with man will not go on forever because man is flesh. And indeed he is. We are weak and frail in so many ways. Psalm 90 verse 3, you return man to the dust and say, return, O children of man. James 4.14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We are in constant need for God to uphold us. I mean, we can't even exist apart from God's power. But there's more being communicated here in verse 3 than just that truth. I think that is part of it, but there's more to it. The Christian Standard Bible translation renders the verse like this. My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. You know, we aren't just flesh. We have fallen and sinful flesh. Paul teaches us that to set the mind on the flesh is death. Sowing to the flesh, he teaches us, results in reaping corruption. And apart from the grace of God, man 
goes after fallen lusts and appetites, despising the Lord and giver of life. And because of this, God declares in verse 3 that he will only continue striving with the pre-flood, the pre-diluvian world for another 120 years, and after that, judgment will come. This is God's pronouncement upon the surpassing evil of all mankind in the earth, with only a very few exceptions who we know were there in the line of promise. With, the, with those few exceptions aside, the whole human race was unwavering in their rebellion against God. But here we must remember something. What immediately preceded this verse? It was the record of the fallen angels and human women having intercourse with one another. So this unnatural sexual conduct, this perversion that was going on was part, not, not entirely, but it was part of the reason that God brings judgment upon the earth and the flood. But notice very carefully what verse 3 says. My spirit shall not abide in man forever. God's judgment in this passage is directed towards the human race, not the angels. Now, were these angels condemned for their behavior? Absolutely. Um, Peter and Jude were clear about that in the passages that we read. Um, they did undergo and will continue for eternity to undergo judgment and punishment, God's wrath being poured out upon them for this. But angels are not in covenant with God in the same way that man is. God did not give the earth to the angels, did he? The scripture says God gave the earth to the children of man. And God destroyed the world through a flood because of man's rebellion against him, not the angels' rebellion against him. Angels are not created in God's image. We are created in God's image. Satan's fall didn't bring about the curse and judgment upon the world. Ours did. And it was our sin that led to the pre-flood world being wiped away. God's very clear about this. So while that is certainly very sobering in many ways, maybe counterintuitively, it also provides hope. Why, you might be asking. Well, because the Spirit of God contends not with angels, but with men. The gospel is preached to men and women. Jesus Christ died for the sins of men. Brothers and sisters, we understand there is no forgiveness offered to the demons. God has justly condemned them for their wickedness. There is no mercy extended to Satan. And we also understand by that that God was not obligated to extend mercy to Adam's race either. But he did. And we thank him with great joy and love in our hearts that he chose to be gracious to man. Jesus Christ took to himself our nature so that we could be redeemed and restored to our creator. Hebrews says, surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's true believers, by the way. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Sin and misery came through the man, Adam. Eternal life and blessed peace come through the man, Jesus Christ. Human men and women have the hope of glorifying and enjoying God forever because it pleased God 
mercifully to make a covenant of grace with us after we spat in his face and broke the covenant of works. God strives with men every day as the gospel is faithfully proclaimed all across the world. This is why we send missionaries and this is why we support foreign um, language Bible translation work. Because we know that all those who respond in faith and repentance to that message will receive pardon and acceptance. Nevertheless, we also acknowledge that the only ones able to repent are those whom the Spirit effectually draws, the ones he gives a new heart to, the ones that he gives flesh to the dry bones, gives spiritual life. Many are called, Christ teaches us, but few are chosen. Thomas Watson, a Puritan divine, writes on this topic. He says, this is the reason why the word preached works so differently upon men. Two men are in a pew. One is wrought upon effectually, yet the other lies at the ordinance as a dead child at the breast and gets no nourishment. What is the reason? Because the heavenly gale of the spirit blows upon the one and not the other. Apart from God graciously granting us the new birth, we will hear the gospel and resist it to our dying breath. We would never choose to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ if we were left to our own devices. But God is merciful to those whom he has appointed unto eternal life from before the foundation of the world. And he grants a new heart that willingly chooses to follow Christ. Just as the psalmist says that Christ's people will offer themselves freely to him, not under compulsion, not having a gun pointed to your head. You want to, you desire him. And those who desire Christ and come to Christ will not be cast out by Christ. To the elect, Watson says that God's spirit speaks sweetly, but irresistibly. He speaks with gentleness, but also with power. So all men, all men and women, boys and girls, are indiscriminately called to repentance and faith. The Spirit strives and contends with all men in that way. But it's only the elect who receive the special inward call, the enabling call. No one can come to me, Christ says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And yet, None of that is contrary to this statement. Also from the scripture, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And also what Ezekiel says, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God says that I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they might turn and live. If you desire to submit yourself to Christ, you will be received by Christ. I know that infallibly because God told me so in his word. Christ will save you. No one who desires the risen Christ will be rejected by Christ. Come to Christ today, unbelieving friend. You will not be forsaken by him. Forsake your sins. Fly to the one who purchased pardon for all who repent. Even if this is the hundredth time that you have heard the gospel, do not presume that God will continue striving with you, friend. This could be the last time that you hear the gospel preached to you. Do not presume that God will continue to be patient. Our God is long-suffering, and we praise him for that. But eventually, justice and judgment do come. In Genesis 6, 
that period of time was 120 years. Friend, you don't know how long that's going to be for you. Your next breath isn't guaranteed to you, and it's not owed to you either. Don't be like the man described by the Apostle Peter. Scoffers coming in the last days who are scoffing with their sinful desires. Peter says they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the Father fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that um, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not abuse God's patience and God's kindness towards you, friend. I pray that today will be the day of salvation for you if you have not turned to Christ. Jesus lived the perfect life that you couldn't. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, for the atonement of the sins of his people, and he arose triumphant on the third day trust in him at this very hour because you don't know if you have another one. Church, as we now prepare to enter a time of prayer and reflection, I do have a couple of final thoughts that I want to share with you. First, if you profess Christ and yet you are walking in sin, if your lifestyle is one of pretending to look holy around the right people while harboring and cherishing sin in secret, if you have the attitude of enjoy sin now and repent of it later, you too are presuming upon the patience of God. You are treating grace as a thing to be abused not a thing to be cherished. And I fear that if that describes you, that on the last day it will be proven that you were never God's child, that you will have had what Hebrews calls an evil heart of unbelief, though you have been in the midst of God's people. Friend, if that's you, if you call yourself a Christian while practicing sin and you just assume that God will continue to be patient with you. Please hear me when I tell you this is very serious. This is a matter of spiritual life and spiritual death. Don't allow your heart to be hardened. If I didn't love you, it would be a lot easier to never even talk about things like this. But as a minister of the gospel, and as a pastor of this church, I implore you to humble yourself before God. Repent of your flippant attitude towards sin and praise him for his patience and kindness towards you up to this point. And if you refuse, like the people of Noah's day, after those 120 years, you will come to the dreadful point where it is too late. Just as the Israelites refused to hear God's voice and the wilderness, and he swore in his wrath that they would never enter his rest with him. The apostle Paul asks us this question, and he exhorts us, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, 
I want to close this time with a word of encouragement and hope for you. While God's patience isn't a thing to be abused, it is a thing that we should rejoice and thank him for. I stand before you as one very undeserving. God has been more patient, more kind with me than I ever could have imagined. The scripture says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Are you moved to humility and gratitude, church? Are you grateful that when you were God's enemy, that he was patient with you? That while you were his enemy, that he sustained you to the day that he gave you spiritual life and saved you? None of us were born Christians. All of us at some point in our lives were objects of wrath before we believed the gospel. And God was patient with us. Are you glad about that? Or what about the patience he continues to show us in our lives as Christians? Though we fall every day, he still loves us, still calls us his people. God's mercies are new every morning. Or as one great song says, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. He invites us when we fall to arise and go to him, to boldly go to the throne of grace. And this leads to a deepening affection for the Lord Jesus when we realize the true breadth of his kindness towards us, what he has done for us in our lives and what he promises that he will do, what he will bring to completion by his spirit. Our God is indeed gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I promise you, if you really meditate on that and seek to live in accordance with those promises and that grace, it will change your attitude in worship. It will change your attitude towards sin and holiness. And it will affect your patience when others, as you bear with them, as you consider how God is patient with you and bears with you, his kindness towards you will affect your kindness towards others but it also affects the peace that you experience and enjoy in this life. When your heart is filled with love and gratitude towards the God who has lavished such mercies upon you, who has been patient and kind with you your whole life long. The angels in today's passage, who were not content with their positions, who rebelled against God, God condemned them to eternal torment. But he has had mercy upon you, dear Christian. Oh, you didn't deserve it any more than the angels did, but he lavished grace upon you. The gospel is an exquisitely beautiful thing. It is something that the scripture says the angels long to look into, that God is merciful to the children of man, that he calls us his adopted sons and daughters. All of that wonderful good news, well, that will take an eternity to praise and worship God for and thankfully, eternity is exactly what you and I will have with him, brother, sister. May all glory be to our patient, loving God. Let's pray. 
Oh, Father in heaven, there was nothing in us that inclined your love and affection towards us, but you set it on us freely. We thank you that we are objects of your mercy this morning for the patience and kindness that you extended to us when we were running away from you and loving sin. And we likewise praise you, O God, that in our lives of sojourning in this world on our pilgrimage to the new heavens and the new earth, as we continue to stumble and fall, that you are still patient with us. You are still kind to us. Father, that you love us in the beloved one, that we are accepted in him, and that even in those seasons where we are wandering, where we have stumbled, that in the midst of your fatherly discipline, that that is kindness to us, that that is you being a loving father to us, and so that that would not discourage us, but that it would move us to repentance, to a deeper reliance upon you, and a deeper love for you. Oh, Father, we thank you that we have been caught up into the heavenly, seated with Christ, and may that affect the way we live our lives, the way we treat one another, the ways that we are patient and kind towards one another in our church, in our families, our friends, and also, O oh Lord, that it would affect the meditations of our hearts, that all the day long we would contemplate and grow in our appreciation for and our cherishing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we lift up this prayer to you, O oh God, by the Holy Spirit, in his name. Amen.